Song of Songs, Chapter 1 Solomon's Song of Songs Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. How right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock, and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Angedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. Song of Songs 2 I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field to not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. My dove, 
in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside. Show me your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes, that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. Song of Songs 3 All night long, on my bed, I look for the one my heart loves. I looked for him but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city, through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Woo! This isn't even the juicy part. You know, that comes a little later. And you guys don't understand Hebrew idiom. I did the NIV translation to spare you. Last week I did the New Living, so it gave us a little... I embarrassed my wife as she read. Gave us a little more insight into the actual Hebrew idioms. Uh, well, good morning. We are in the wisdom literature. We've looked at Psalms and Proverbs in the past here at Waypoint Church, and during this, mini, this series, we were looking at, like I mentioned earlier, Job, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. Uh, it's also called the Song of Solomon, uh, and that comes from the King James, so some of you might have heard it in both, but the English, the NIV and some other translations call it the Song of Songs, so that I'll, I'll refer to it today as the Song of Songs or the Song, because that's how a Hebrew person would have referred to it as the Song. Um, so to start... I want us to listen, this is two minutes, so, to a popular American love song, and don't think too much about it, just listen to it. I mean, all of, most of you should be familiar with it, and then I'm going to tie these two together, so just take two minutes to listen to this song.
it is walk you through a little American music journey. And the last version you just heard was Whitney Houston's came out in the early 90s. And the first one you heard was the original from Dolly Parton about 20 years earlier. And then Linda Ronstadt covered Dolly Parton's version on a record. And uh, Kevin Costner was making a movie with Whitney Houston. And the song that he had picked was a Motown song, but he found out that it was being used in another movie. So he needed a song. And he remembered from his Linda Ronstadt album from the 70s, I Will Always Love You. So he ran to the record store and the rumor goes, or he, he confirmed, he, he played the record, the Linda Ronstadt version, which was a cover of the Dolly Parton version, for Whitney Houston and said, let's do it. And the rest is history. That song came out about 40 years after rock pop started in America. And it was, on the, it was the number one song for 14 straight weeks. It became the, the most popular song of all, uh, the Whitney Houston version. And Dolly Parton made a lot of money off her original version <laughs> and the other one. What's funny is I told my brother-in-law yesterday, I was like, yeah, you're going to hear that we're doing Song of Songs. And I mentioned Dolly Parton. And he's like, I have no idea where the sermon's going to go. <laughs> Uh, but the original song, Dolly Parton wrote it as she was breaking up with her manager, who she really cared about. He was the one who gave her uh, her big, big break, but she was becoming more popular than he was, and he had her doing TV shows and all these other things, and she, she wrote the song because she didn't want to tell him. You know, she was like, I really care about you, and I'm thankful for you. He kind of was her mentor and brought her into the music industry. But it was time for her to go on her own. And that's what the song was written for. The rumor goes that she wrote it the same day she wrote Jolene, which is pretty amazing that Dolly Parton could write two, two like amazing classic songs on the same day. But uh, she actually sang it to her Porter Wagner, her, her manager, and then recorded it. And it became a hit. And then, like I said, Linda Ronstadt recorded it on her album just, just as a cover. She didn't try to launch it on the radio just so more people could hear the song. Linda and, and Ronstadt and Dolly Parton were friends. And you might be asking, why did I do this? Why did I bring this to the sermon? Well, one is during COVID, there was this PBS documentary on country music history. And I love history and I love music. So Eric and I watched it. And I just kind of became obsessed with American music. And, and even how spiritual, most of these people, whether it's R&B or country or rock, started singing in church and just how all of this came together. But then I was thinking about this song, the fascinating, because I was a senior in high school when Whitney's version came out. I mean, it took over my high school. It was the love song. But I don't know if anybody thought of, even though it was a breakup song, I, I mean, everywhere I went, I heard that song. Kids were playing it, it was, it was huge. Um, but with that song, it, the original intent was so Dolly could break up with her manager. And the love was a friendship love, you know, just a platonic love, like, I really care about you. And then it became, with Linda Ronsat, she made it neutral. She didn't even add the last stanza. She just made it a, a pretty song. And by Whitney, it was linked to this movie that, I heard the movie's not very good. I've never seen it. It didn't win any awards or anything. It's actually considered a, a dumb movie. But the song <laughs> took over the world. This became the most popular song in the world. I lived in China and would hear this song being played even 15 years after that, 20 years and I, I bring this up because love songs are part of our lives. I, at our staff meeting last Wednesday, I asked different staff, I'm not going to embarrass them, and I said, what was the song that you, when you had your first crush was on in the background? Or what song did you want played at your wedding? 
And it was fun to hear the responses. And I'm not going to name any of those songs because I want you to think of your songs and think about when you first started feeling emotions and songs became the soundtrack of your life um, and, and how songs play into that. And then worship songs too. What's funny is I really like 70s country rock. Uh, it's one of my favorite genres. And then there's, and, and I also like early 80s Christian music and, and I love praise music. So all these things kind of blend together. And when Spotify, we got Spotify, what, about four months ago, six months ago. And the old Spotify, I guess, or one of the things you had to like the song or give it a thumbs up. So that Pandora, we used to have Pandora. And if you wanted to hear the song again, you had to hit a little thumbs up. So on Spotify, I was like all excited and I'm like going on all these lists. So every time I heard a song that I liked from my childhood, I'd hit the little heart. But I forgot. That's just, and then I had this giant list of like 500 songs that I liked. And I would just play it. And Erica's like, this is driving me crazy. It would go from like Hillsong, you know, King of Kings to Eye of the Tiger. Uh, But I, I bring all this up because music and songs are part of who we are. And a song can have its original meaning, and then it can have the meaning that it became. Like the bodyguard meaning of the song is very different than breaking up, I mean, than breaking up with your manager, not a love story. By the time it hit, you know, my friends, it was just a love song. I mean, we played at the school dance, you know, like <laughs> it was the number one song being played. It just became a love song, and it has layers. So that song probably means different things to different people. Uh, and then I did not plan this. I had, I had already decided that that song was what I was going to start the sermon with. And this is Thursday in North Carolina. Let's watch this video. This is Thursday this week, this last week. March of 2020 until now with, you know, they're pretty much part of their junior year and all of their senior year was a mess. And this principal re- brought, brought it to a different level. Same song, same. And, and I, so you see the layers. You see how songs are powerful. And I, that's, that's music. So that's my introduction to the song of songs. And I love music, like I said, and one of the songs that you'll hear on this playlist that I love is a song called More Than a Feeling by Boston. I just heard that song maybe when I was a kid, and I was like, wow, this is awesome. And the song is literally like, a song is more than a feeling. And he he imagines seeing this girl that walked away named Marianne, and, and when he sees her, he hears this song. And when they play this song, he remembers this girl. And And songs are powerful. Songs are part of who we are. And that's why we sing praise songs. We sing praises to God. So that's how I'm going to start. And then before I even talk about love and romance and the song of songs and and just kind of what the passage is about, I do want to identify something that 
in the Bible, starting with Isaiah 56, when God is proclaiming this new kingdom, the kingdom of the good news, the kingdom of the gospel, the kingdom of this Messiah that's coming in Isaiah 56, 3 through 5, he talks about how everyone's going to be included and that even if you're not married or you can't be married or you can't have children, you're included in this kingdom. And Jesus continues this theme in Matthew 12, where when they ask him, where's your mother and brother and sister? And he says, no, whoever does the will of my father is my mother and brother and sister. And then in Matthew 19, Jesus continues the theme where he talks about celibacy and singleness for the gospel. That in this new family of God, in this new kingdom, marriage isn't the way that it's going to spread. It's going to spread through the Great Commission. It's going to spread through love. It's going to spread through sharing the good news with others. So whether you are married or you, you, or, and you can't have kids or you can't have kids, that's not, those aren't factors in the new kingdom. Then in Matthew 22, Jesus reiterates that at the resurrection, there won't even be marriage. They try to, the, the Sadducees try to test Jesus with this question of a guy who, you know, his wives keep dying and who's going to be his wife at the resurrection. And Jesus makes it clear that in the resurrection, we're all one family together. This doesn't take away from the beauty of marriage and the importance of it, and that it's, it's the, in the first chapter of the Bible. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul dedicates a whole chapter to singleness, that it's actually a gift, and that many people for the kingdom, like Jesus says in Matthew 19, should remain single and many people may not be able to have kids for various reasons, and that's okay, because the new family, the new creation that Jesus is creating isn't built only around, you know, a married husband and wife and their kids. And God is creating something new. There's a lot of brokenness out there, and the kingdom is going to be built through the brokenness, and through it's, it's being built by people joining the family of God. So as we talk about marriage and sex, I don't want people to think if God calls you to be single and celibate, that that's a bad thing. Actually, Paul elevates that even higher, saying that you can do more for the kingdom. So I just wanted to start with that. So I'm going to do four things this morning. I want to share what the song is about, the Song of Songs is about. Why is it called the Song of Songs? Why is it in the Bible? And how can this 2,500-year-old love song shape me today? So let's jump right in. What is the song about? Tremper Logman, who I've quoted a lot in our Ecclesiastes series, he's an Old Testament scholar. I'm just going to use his definition. The Song of Songs is composed of 27 separate love poems. Sorry, 23. He, he says 23, some other scholars, it's somewhere probably between 10 and 23. But all scholars agree that it's, it's a series of love poems. Like we have the Psalms, we have 151 Psalms. This is a, a series of love poems that have been united into a single composition through the use of refrains in common images and characters. The song is, in this sense, a single song composed of many songs. The major theme of the book is human love between a man and a woman. Many striking images communicate that this love is sensual, intimate, exclusive, and important. Since the broader canon, the broader Bible, describes our relationship with God as a marriage, the more we learn about married love, the more we also learn about our relationship with our divine spouse. And while most modern scholars, like Longman, agree that the best way that we are to read the song literally at the first layer, and then, and then work our way through the layers, I want to acknowledge that for long parts of Jewish 
and Christian history, uh, many have read the song primarily as just an allegory of God's love for humanity. And my, this might be because they were embarrassed by it. And of all the examples of allegory, this is written by a, a, a Bible scholar from many years ago, like hundreds and hundreds of years ago. One of the allegorical readings sees Psalm 113, Song 113, my beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts as referring to Jesus who spans the Old and New Testament. You can't make this stuff up, guys, because people didn't want it to be sensual at all. So that was probably that's not true. Jesus does span the Old and New Testament, but we can read that literally. Uh, But we can also read it in layers and there probably is a bigger meaning. Not probably there is. So reading it in layers, starting with the literal reading and then peeling off and dissecting each layer is most likely the proper way to read the song. The images of love, marriage, desire, and intimacy are vivid and vital to hearing from the text. And then we can more clearly see the allusions to the garden, to the fall, the garden Eden, the fall, the land, the temple, the Old Testament wisdom tradition which are all evident throughout the Song of Songs. And we start to see that you can find them in the literal layer, and then you can find them in each additional layer. Yet when we start reading with a literal, we start with the literal reading, we clearly notice the many sexual references. Old Testament scholar Cheryl Exum points out that the romantic encounters in the song are described through the indirection of language, through innuendo, And then this new word I learned as I studied Song of Songs. It's called double entredra. It looks like double enchendra, but it's a French word, I guess, but we carry it over into English. Double enchendra. Double enchendra and metaphor. And double enchendra literally just means, I had to look the word up. It means a word or phrase open to two or more interpretations, one of which is usually sexual, like... If I said, wow, everyone seems to be having babies, there must be something in the water. Or the hosp- people started saying this at the beginning of COVID, the hospitals are gonna be full in nine months. That has a double meaning, right? I mean, how, why nine months? You know, so just by saying that statement, you, you, get the, you get both meanings. So the Song of Songs is literally like that over and over again. And, But there's beauty in that because sex and love are part of God's creation. They're part of his humanity. I don't want to look at my kids. No, I want to look at my kids because I want my kids. I don't want to embarrass them, but I want my kids to see this because this is good. This is God's creation. Half the people are like embarrassed for my kids. (laughs) So in the layers, in the song, we see the connections to Eden. We see the connections to what Solomon and David could have been. There's this talk of, we don't know if the men, if there's two guys. Some interpretations say there's like the shepherd, which is like the ideal guy. And they think she's, she's actually in the harem of Solomon. Most modern scholars don't think that. But the shepherd is like the ideal. And, and the, the references to Solomon are like the bad dude who ends up marrying all these women, just marrying them for their beauty, not because he really wanted God's best. So there's layers in it, but we see in the layers, we see tons of references to Eden. All the garden imagery is, is double, double, whatever. You know, it, it's sexual. Almost every garden reference in there is sexual, but it's also literal. 
It's talking about gardens. Well, what happens? What's the first command in the garden? Be fruitful and multiply. But they're in, so you see this garden, this temple language. Solomon was actually the pinnacle. The temple that Solomon builds is supposed to be a new Eden. And he's supposed to rule like Adam and Eve should have ruled. But instead, he falls apart, as we talked about last week in the Ecclesiastes sermon. And then there's strong, strong echoes in the layers to Proverbs 1 through 9. And in Proverbs 1 through 9, there's Lady Wisdom who basically talks a lot about don't commit adultery and be careful of sexual sin. And then there's Lady Folly, what happens when you do. So you, you see the layers. Then um, I want to answer the question, why is it called the Song of Songs? And let's look at the first song in the Bible. The first time someone in the Bible says like a poem, a human, not God. It's in Genesis 2, 20, 23. This is New Living. At last, the man exclaimed, and this is the song. This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the first song in the Bible. Remember that, log that, because we're going to look at also the last time people are singing in the Bible, in Revelation. But in, in, in the Hebrew tradition, they, they don't count this as a song, but they say there's, there's 10 songs in Hebrew tradition. There's 10 songs in their, their Bible. The first one is the song that, David, that you're supposed to sing on the Sabbath day from Psalm 92. The second one is the song of Moses and Miriam when they, when they escape from the Red Sea in Exodus 15. The third psalm is, is the song is the time when they were given the water uh, from the well was given to them in Numbers 21. The fourth song is when was uttered when Moses left this earth in Deuteronomy 32. The fifth song was jo uttered by Joshua when he waged war and the moon and the sun stood still for 36 hours. The sixth song in Hebrew history is the song of Barak and Deborah in Judges 5. The seventh song is the song that Hannah uttered as she cried out for a son in 1 Samuel 2. The eighth song is the song King David of Israel uttered and, and praised God for the miracles that he did for him in 2 Samuel 22. The ninth psalm in the Old Testament in Jewish history is the Song of Songs, what we call Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. And the tenth song is the song that they would utter when they come back from exile from Isaiah uh, 30, 29. We'll put that one up. It says, but the people of God will sing a song of joy, like the songs at the holy festivals, and particularly the Passover. You will be filled with joy as when a flutist leads a group of pilgrims to Jerusalem, the mountain of the Lord, the rock of Israel. And this, this is a double uh, fulfillment. This means that this will happen when they come out of exile, but it also will happen when the Messiah comes, but it will also happen in the end when there's a new heaven and a new earth. So it's a, it's a really cool illustration of this song they're going to sing. But I want you to think about this. The, every year in Jewish history, like during the pre-exile and post-exile period, they read the Song of Songs at the Passover celebration. Can you imagine being a kid and instead of reading the Song of Moses and Miriam, they read this, what, what we just heard, the whole thing in its entirety. There's something to it that we don't get. Like, there, there's something more, like to them it was exciting. It was like hearing your favorite song. 
your I will always love you or whatever the song is that when you hear that on the radio or you're in the store, you just stop and you just have to just you just stop because it brings back memories. Now, it's called the Song of Songs, and that's a powerful way of using language in the Hebrew language. You've heard of the Holy of Holies, right? The Lord of Lords, the God of Gods. You've also heard of nothing of nothing or vanity of vanities or everything is meaningless. So when, when it's used, so basically the Bible is proclaiming that this is the greatest of all songs. In Deuteronomy 10, 17, it says, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. And then in Psalm 136, it says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. You see, when the, when the Old Testament Hebrew uses the Lord of Lords, and then in the New Testament, we'll get the phrase King of Kings, which we'll actually talk about next week. By calling it the Song of Songs, the implication is it's the greatest of all songs ever penned by a human. So why is it in the Bible? Where does it fit in the canon? I'm going to show a couple images so the Tanakh is the abbreviation of how you say, this is how the Bible, what we call the Old Testament, was in the Jewish, it, it, it wasn't like one volume, it was a series of scrolls. And this is what it looked like in the scrolls. And there was the law, the prophets, and the writings. And if you look in the writings, you see the pre-exilic, that means before they went into exile, that's when Song of Songs, we believe, was composed. And... There's five songs that are called the five scrolls. Five, Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentation, and Esther. And those five were read at, at five of the Jewish festivals. And it's like I said, Song of Songs was the one that was read at the Passover, the most important festival in Jewish history. And the Passover is also the day when Jesus dies. So there's, you know, it's, so we, we need to take this and, and say, God, why is this in here? Next slide. So this is, called, it's hard to see, sorry it's so small, but this is the Greek Septuagint is on the right, and that is the translation, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was completed about 100 years before Christ, and this is the, what the early church generally used, and this is what our New Testament is mostly based on, uh, but if you'll notice, there's the historical, they divided into historical books, wisdom books, and prophets, and if you see Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Job are in the wisdom literature. The ones in red are in what we call the Apocrypha. They're like extra books that are important, but they're not, we don't, they weren't part of the Hebrew Bible, so we don't include them in our present Bible. But you see where the Song of Songs fits in the wisdom literature. Next one. I've shown this like three, in three different sermons, but this is our modern, I would say, how we look at it through the light, lens of the New Testament, how we can see that all of these books work together to show us how we are to be part of, like to give us wisdom of how to live as the people of God. So there's a strong connection between sex and desire and impulse. And like I said, the song must be there. The song of songs must be there to stir emotion, to get people excited and to bring back imagery of Eden what Solomon could have been and what he wasn't and what these kings of Israel could have been and what they weren't and then really to, to flesh out a little bit of, of Proverbs 1 through 9. Um, but I want to hone in on just one part for my teaching this morning. 
And I just want to hone in on this. It's in chapter 7, verse 10, and it says, I belong to my beloved and his desire. Notice that word desire is for me. So in the Septuagint, and that, does, that word desire is only used three times. That Hebrew word that we translate as desire is only used three times in the Hebrew Bible. It's used when Adam and Eve fell and God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband. And then it's used in the next chapter with Cain and Abel when he says, sin desires to cease you, to, to take over you and, and cause you to sin and, and cause you to, to do harm to your brother. And then it's used here. So I believe, and I got this from some other scholars, that the song is reversing the garden and reversing the Cain and Abel story. There's something about the evil and the brokenness that happened there that human relationships can be restored. And if you take this word in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of it, it they translate it into a word that means to make us excited to turn us back to God. And it, the same word used in Genesis um, chapter 3 and 4 is used in Jeremiah 8. And it says, why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit and refuse to return. So, so there's something about like turning away and then turning back to God. And then in Jeremiah 18, the same word is used. And it says, but they will reply, it is no use. We will continue to use our own plans and we will follow the stubbornness. And that word stubbornness is actually the same word. This desire for something that's not God of our evil hearts. So I truly believe that part of the psalm, because the song, Song of Songs, is this word desire. God is, they get a song where they can celebrate what could have been in the garden and what could have been in relationships. To make us excited to turn back to God and to renew and restore proper desire. I'm not, we can put up the Genesis passage. You know, it says, he said, I will make your pains at childbearing very severe. Very severe. This is God's punishment for them sinning in the, in the garden. Your desire, that word, like I said, it only shows up three times in the Hebrew scriptures, will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he says, because you have listened to your wife and ate from the fruit of the tree, which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Notice tree, garden. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from food from it all the days of your life. You notice all the garden imagery, it's sexual and it's regular. They get all this fruit. They're eating. It's good. So I truly believe that part of why we have the Song of Songs is it's, it's saying that it can be better in every way. Then if you go to Genesis 4, 6 through 8, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Do what is right and you will... Uh, and you will not be accepted. Um, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Same word, desire. It's not just sexual. It's also our desire for something that isn't God led to the first murder we read about. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. Notice field, garden imagery. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. And then like I said in the Song of Songs, chapter 7, says, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. See how the man isn't, it's not struggling to garden in this, in this garden. Now this is sexual and physical. There, there's two layers to this. It's like in the 80s, any of you go back and watch, listen to a song that you used to like, 
And then you're like, holy cow, like Greece, like the songs in Greece are filled with innuendos, but everyone's like, ooh, you know, the one that I want or whatever. But then you're like, listen to the real words and you're like, holy cow, that's what that means. This is innuendo, but it's also, I mean, may your breasts be like clusters of grapes, it's both. I mean, it's innuendo and it's direct, but you see how God is, is, is bringing back the garden in multiple levels and this desire, if we go to, uh, it says, may the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over his lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. I believe the song is in there to bring our desire back to God. It's restoring Eden in a way that no one could do. Even the best king they got, Solomon, couldn't do it. But in, in God, we can. So how can this 2,500-year-old song shape us today? Next week, we're going to look at how, you know, how can this Old Testament wisdom literature teach us, you know, this 2,500-year-old wisdom literature teach us about love, marriage, and sex in light of our current reality. Most people think it can teach us nothing because it's old, but it can teach us a lot. That's why I said next week is going to be rated a little closer to, you know, it's moving beyond the PG-13 mark. And also, how does a collection of love poems relate to the good news and point us to Jesus? So that's next week. But for this week, I have three applications that I want us to get from the song. One, desire God and see how God is chasing you. In the song, there's all this imagery of them chasing each other. And... I think it's okay for us to hear a song and, imagine, and feel good because God is chasing us, but we're also called to chase him. It's the great paradox, right? To have found him and still be looking for him or something. It's from A.W. Tozer, right? It's the soul's paradox of love. I, I can't remember the exact words, but yeah, to find him and still be looking for him. If, if you get what you want, you're done. But if there's always a pursuit, there's something about the great pursuit that keeps us in the game and keeps us excited. And that, but God doesn't do that just so that we can feel excited. God does that because we continually need him. So I would ask you and plead with you and say, desire God and see, chase him, but also see how he's chasing you. And then this, the second point is desire healthy relationships as you desire God. Enjoy these relationships. And this one can be awesome and great when things are going well. If you have good friendships, if you go on a good retreat and hang out with people, you're bouncing off the walls. But as soon as there's one conflict, when I went overseas to do some mission work, the team leader made a joke. He's like, oh yeah, you can date all you want while you're over here. Just don't break up. <laughs> right? <laughs> that was his advice on dating. What was funny is our team had just, we all ended up marrying each other. Eric and I, the other couple, they're actually, they planted a church in Morrisville. It's kind of, it's kind of cool. Um, and, you know, I, if, if relationships are difficult, then you just want to run and you want to flee. So I would say desire healthy relationships as you desire God and ask God, chase after them. And what's cool is in the New Testament, the New Testament, we have all these one another passages. We're actually going to hand out a sheet of all the one another passages at every new when you join Waypoint now, we're going to just hand out the sheet to you so you can see it, because that's who, the essence of who we want to be. But it's going to be hard at times, I promise you. 
but it's gonna be good because it's right. We were meant to be in relationships with each other. We weren't meant to be like Cain who let sin desire him and killed his own brother. We sin and our own desires will kill relationships. And I don't think it's insignificant that Jesus compares adultery and murder in the Sermon on the Mount to just looking at a woman lustfully or just hating someone in your heart. Because most people would just say, oh, I don't, I don't, I'm not a bad person. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't committed a murder. But Jesus says, let's, let's re- in this new kingdom, we got to think differently about relationships. And the final thing is worship God. Sing to God. Celebrate. Enjoy his creation. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding, right? And he brought wine. And no matter what the Baptist or whoever you grew up with tell you, it was real wine. It might have had a lower alcohol content, but it had some alcohol in it. It wasn't grape juice. And Jesus gave them the best one last, which meant that it tasted the best. Let's sing to God. Let's praise him. In Psalms, there's Psalm 44, which is a lament psalm because God has punished them because of their sin. In Psalm 45, which I read this morning, it's the only psalm in the Bible that's close to the Song of Songs. It's a love song. It has a lot of love imagery. And then in Psalm 46, there's a praise. So I believe, and these are all meant to be sung out loud. They sung them as songs. So there's, there's a time to sing songs of lament, and there's a time to sing songs of praise, but there's a time just to fall in love. Fall in love with the person that God's, with, with friends and relationships that God's given you. Fall in love with a, a person who might be your spouse one day. You know, don't, don't awaken love and jump the gun on that. We're going to talk about that one next week. You know, you can't hurry love. You'll just have to wait. Um, that's next week. But there's a place for just loving each other and, and just falling in love with God and falling in love with human relationships. And I believe the song wants us to do that. So let's, and then the last thing is just celebrate and enjoy creation. There is a time to, to go serve and do things, but there's a time to have fun. Seems like the ladies had a great time at, at the Trigar's house this last week. We got a men's fellowship coming. If you can, invite people over your house, do events. Don't wait, oh, no one likes me, no one's inviting me. Take that first step. Let's celebrate life. Yeah, we're gonna go be good neighbor teams. We're gonna do all these things, but we've got to be people who celebrate. The song wants us to do that, and this is the greatest song. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the song. And I thank you that in in Revelation, the final song that we sing is about a bride and a groom and a banquet. And that's our hope. You started us off in Genesis with the song And you ended us in Revelation with a song and a banquet. And you call us to a new kingdom. God, I pray that we would be people who celebrate together, who love each other. May our song be your song. And may we celebrate you in song. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.